Welcome to The Leadership Mind. I'm your host, Massimo Bacchus. This show is about the stories, assumptions, and perspectives that either create or block our ability to lead. In this podcast, we'll speak with those that are in the arena, the leaders themselves. By trade and training, I'm a leadership coach and facilitator with a relentless curiosity for helping people, teams, and organizations thrive in pursuit of making their vision and purpose a reality. The goal is to bring you new insights, perspectives, and practices to help you lead authentically, navigate your career intentionally, and grow high-performing teams successfully. My hope is that in these episodes, you will witness humility, where we celebrate our failures as much as our successes. Curiosity, where we share wisdom and insights openly. And community, where we grow together. Let's explore the leadership mind. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Leadership Mind podcast. I'm your host, Massimo Bacchus, and today I'm joined by my friend, Lila Bullingtown, who we met, I met probably a year ago, Lila, and, and we hit it off really quickly, and I was just in, really impressed with your uh, demeanor, composure, and um, breadth of knowledge in the space of leadership. You've spent over 20 years working in leadership development and executive coaching, um, have developed your own program, the Awesome Leader Program, which we're going to hear about uh, today in this conversation. Um, but throughout the 20 years, you've worked with VPs, uh, C-suite executives, startup founders, um, and you've helped organizations go from startup all the way to uh, you know IPO. You've seen it all, and, and the good, the bad, the ugly, and, and everything in between, and I'm looking forward to discussing that with you today. So welcome. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. And I'm going to consider the 20 plus years, as somebody told me a few years ago, as a badge of honor. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. I mean, that's an accomplishment in of itself. And you've been doing work that you love. Is that right? Yes. Doing work that I love and work that challenges me, gets me excited and gets me frustrated, uh, sometimes on a daily basis, uh, sometimes with the individual as well. And that is, uh, in a way, I'm leading the lives of the people that I coach and uh, lead through programs, right? So there are the ups and downs and it's all about thinking about what am I going to do today? How am I going to behave? What am I going to say and do? And what's easy and what's difficult? Yeah. Well, there's ups and downs no matter what we do, as long as we're spending our time doing work that we love that has an impact, uh, it makes those ups and downs a little bit less um, frustrating, I suppose. Yes. Yes. So I, I know you've been in this space for a long time, but I'm curious, where were you before? What's the origin story for you that, that launched you into this, into this field, into this line of work um, and the impact that you've had for so long? Yes. So my, it's great you asked that because I recently had somebody reach out to me and say, I want to be in leadership development and I want to progress on the coaching. You know, what is your story? And it had been a while since I had told my story. So I was going to be a college English professor and I got into a master's program, got into the PhD program down at the Claremont colleges after finishing my undergraduate degree at Berkeley. And uh, then my parents were like, take a year off, decide if you really want to do this. And so my joke is I'm still on my year off and they probably will not pay for it if I go back. So, um, I, and that teaching experience, I went from that to community college English uh, instruction. And that's probably if I think back to like the origin of like what I do now is I try and make something that is intimidating or difficult, easier for people to understand and put in practice. And when you teach um, somebody 
uh, developmental English skills. Like this is how you write an essay. This is how you communicate. This is how you structure things. This is what punctuation you use and grammar and so forth. You're taking concepts that seem very straightforward and you're making it easier for people to put in practice. And so from there, I went into technical writing when it's a technical training and then went into what was it then called the corporate training space. And had a great opportunity to land at a company where the executive team not only bought into leadership development, but they like actually co-facilitated programs with you. And so that's where I had a great opportunity to use all of those things and kind of come together and say, gosh, I really want to make it easier for people to be leaders. So you were able to translate the work that you were doing as an English professor um, into the corporate space. When you think back about the time in academia, it sounds like some of this is just a natural gift of yours to take the, the complex and the mundane and the daunting uh, and make it um, simple and accessible and, and impactful. What were some of the things that you were doing back then as a grad student and as a, as a professor um, that took developmental English that can be daunting and overwhelming um, and made it, made it approachable for people? Um, so what I did was, and it's great you asked that because I haven't thought about this for a while is. So <laughs> one of the classes that I worked with was um, part of a program at San Jose City College where I was teaching at the time where the college identified students that had high potential, were re-entry students, had other challenges, and they said, we are going to give them um, to somebody and give that person extra support and like know that you are going in and these people have great challenges and opportunities. And from there, what I did was, getting to my point is, I quickly learned that this first group of um, students didn't know how to take notes. Many of them didn't know how to take notes. And at the time I'm like, oh my gosh, like, how's this possible? Like note taking, that's so like, so much part of me. It's like what I did in high school and college and grad school. And so then I started thinking about like, okay, how do you teach people to take notes? And so uh, what I did was for the first week, I created a handout that basically had everything that I would put on the board and everything that I would say in our exercises, and they got that handout. And each week they got a similar handout, but it had blank spaces and increasingly had more blank spaces. And so when they, and I would kind of walk them through it, I'd say, okay, now look at your handout, turn to, there's a blank space. I'm going up to the board, I'm writing something down, you put that in the blank space. And so the process of like taking something that's like really big and confusing, but to me, especially as a leadership coach, like, and it's not like I ever react to like when somebody brings me a problem and says like, duh, what are you thinking? Yet this person is so in their world doing other things. What's so easy for you, Lila, is not easy for them. So easy for me to write notes, not easy for people who they're going back to school after working 20, 30 years, they're finally going to get a college degree. They haven't been taking notes like I have or they have been in a situation where they haven't had the family or community or school network and somebody who said, Hey, you're 14. You don't have to take notes. I'm going to teach you how to write notes. And so that's probably where I think about, uh, I can think about the passion to kind of like make it easy or to do things very piecemeal, kind of one step at a time. So, um, yeah, so it was, they were green sheets. I remember my, my note sheets. They yeah. Green. So, so you were able to, to, take your process and break it down 
and introduce each step of that process so people could kind of build their way up to seeing the big picture. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And when you stepped into the corporate training space, what was that like for you coming from being an English teacher? Was there a bit of kind of a, an identity crisis or shift for you about who am I in this new space and, and um, how does it translate? Yeah, um, it actually wasn't because there's steps in between, like the technical, like I went from that English instruction, like I quickly realized I'm not going to get a job as a tenure track professor at a community college in, in the San Francisco Bay Area. You need a PhD and I have to go back and get it. And then I got a job as a technical writer. Uh, and that that's where it was like another, it was taking almost the same thing. It was basically like taking a concept, breaking it down. And then from there, it was technical training, standing up. And, and I was like, I majored in English and German, like <laughs> and had a master's degree. I was not like a technical trainer. So I think that when I ended up at uh, one of the first internet media companies um, called CNET and ended up doing technical training, people were like, what? You're like, you majored in English and German. You're like, not, you're part of IT. And then that transition to corporate training, when I interviewed internally for that position, the SVP of HR, who is, was an amazing mentor and friend. I'm actually going to have virtual coffee with her this week. Um, she was like, wow, I just didn't think there would be anybody internally, like in it, you're going to come from it to HR. And I remember at the time it was like this mind boggling, like what, like somebody leaving it for HR. Well, I don't know. I mean, Lila was not an it person. And I, by the way, I've met great engineers who were English majors philosophy majors. And so it wasn't necessarily an identity crisis, but another way to translate information. Yeah. And you were following your interests. It sounds like, was there something in HR leadership space that you saw when you were a technical writer that piqued your interest? I think it was the reaction that people have when they're like, oh, I get it, which is so much of what, of course, uh, thanks to the pandemic is what I miss because so much of my coaching now is done over Zoom. And le I'm, leadership retreats are over, even though I'm doing some of that back in person now, a lot of it is still over Zoom, but it's that kind of feeling of like, oh, and it's that like the look in somebody's eyes, doesn't matter what level they are, where, what their role is, but that kind of like, oh, I'm walking you through and then you do one, two, three. Also, when you're doing something in a technical training and a way and people are sitting down at computers when they like, it's um. I remember in high school and I'm really dating myself, but taking like a entry level, like, you know, programming class that was probably like on the Apple 2C or something. It's like a long time ago. You do certain things and you create a result visually. So that is harder in leadership. Like if I have a great conversation, hopefully I will feel, and I will see something different in that person, but it's not immediate. Whereas like, if you press this button and do that button, or you cook a recipe, you get the, you get all the ingredients and you cook it at the end, you see something. And so I think it was that feeling of, gee, I can take something, I can translate, it, I can break it down. I can make it easier for people. And it was also an opportunity to move into, I'd never thought anything about, and I still in a way don't consider myself an HR expert. I'm a leadership expert yet. It was, um, it was a way to really, um, translate, I guess. Yeah. I'm really stuck on that word there. Translate to make things easier for people piecemeal. Something you just said, um, slight deviation here, Lila, but something you just said, I think is 
is pretty profound. The distinction between HR and leadership. Mm-hmm. And when we think about uh, people and talent and organizations, sometimes it gets all clumped together in one grouping. Um, some organizations, it's intentionally different and talent development is separate from HR. I'm curious from your perspective and your experience, what is it that organizations get wrong about um, these different domains within how we support our talent and our people and organizations from leadership to HR to talent and learning? Where do you see some of the biggest pitfalls and how that's mapped out uh, and how ultimately the people are supported in the business? I was... Again, I don't, I want to, I want to use the word lucky. I think it's not, mm-hmm. I, and I, I, maybe I'll say like, I, I was lucky to say that when I came from IT into the HR organization, that HR, that HR leader was already at the seat. She was already an executive. She was already reporting to the CEO. She had already built credibility. She had an amazing depth of experience. Um, and so that is where, and so my first introduction to HR was like, you are necessary rock stars. You do, and every piece of what you do is so critical to moving the business forward. So it was like, it was almost like you weren't a support function or you weren't like a back office, but you were moving the business part forward and you were HR business partners. And so in my work, when I then opened up my coaching business and started connecting most of the time when people reach out to me, it's the founder or the executive themselves versus the HR team. But I started to realize like, oh my gosh, wow. Like, you know, that experience I had as an HR team is like not routine. Like most of the time, these organizations have not, um, they either haven't had the ability to establish that credibility. They don't know how to, I think, I think overall HR just gets like a bad rap and we can try and rename it as people or human capital, so much, so much of it has to do with how the function is developed and led and where you place the value. And I was again, like so lucky that it, the organization at CNET at that time, that the executive team, not only like they not only paid the bills and put the money in the budget, but they were like, yeah, I will travel with you and I will co-facilitate and I will like teach people about the business and I will play a role here and we will do executive offsites and the CEO would come and introduce like the new management training, he would come and he would sit there and then he would have lunch with, with people. And so that, um, that ability to say, you know what, when you do this stuff, you build businesses, uh, which seems very routine to all of us now was like probably really different back then for a lot of organizations. I do think we've come a long ways since then. And there's still um, room to go further in thinking yeah. about how, um, Again, like you said, whether we call it people or human capital or HR, whatever it is, when you recognize like an organization is fundamentally a group of people in service of a vision. Yes. Yeah. Uh, And so if you're not um, designing the organization, recognizing that it is people, um, it's a missed opportunity and it can be very destructive in hindsight when you you don't think about it um, proactively. So you were at CNET for a number of years. What was the, the catalyst for you to say, I've got enough experience and I've, I've developed myself as an expert here in leadership to move into coaching, start your business and build out the awesome leader program? Yes. So it was a combination of a few things. I had had kids. I wanted to work 
less or I wanted to do something. I I wanted to work less, um, which I was able to at the time. And then we had a shift in leadership. And it's funny as I think back to it, the new leader we had um, did not want to allow me to work part-time as a director. And so, um, which is uh, kind of funny to think about at this time. Um, and so I was like, it's time for me to leave. Like I am, I was already going to start my coaching business. I had already had a few coaching clients. I wanted to be able to go deeper with people and be more of a resource. And I could see when people would go to leadership or training programs, I facilitated the people who would come afterwards and be like, Hey, I got a question. Those people who would then have the question, have the conversation with me, which was the coaching conversation, go and do it and update me. That's where all the fun was. That's where all the fun was. And I was like, I want to do that. I've been here 11 years. I've loved it. It's like kind of, it's like a different feel in terms of our value now on the HR side. And so um, I usually when people are like, I haven't said this in a while, but it's like, I can deal with the same people um, and the same problems, but like, I need different spaces. Like, and that's, what's so fun about being a coach and working with cohorts at, um, in the awesome leader program is like different businesses, different challenges, um, different products. In the end, you know, the challenges are maybe not so different, but that variety of experience and that variety of like locations when I was traveling, that was what I was like, you know what? I need more of this now. So the, the, the variety for you is what kept it alive and interesting. Cause what is it, what is quite fascinating to me is that while um, you could look at leadership across um, industry or product or tenure or culture, and oftentimes the problems are pretty much fundamentally the same. Yeah. They might manifest differently. Uh, we might talk about them differently, um, but they're, they're people problems. They are they're They are. Um, <laughs> so uh, yeah, same problem, same BS, you know, different location. Um, and I think that people want, regardless of whether it's a founder or an executive or a people or a human capital leader who says, Hey, I need help, Lila, coaching my and training my new managers. People want to be validated for their challenges, right? And so, yes, they're, they are valid and they are similar to some of the um, age-old challenges, which is people don't like to set goals and they don't like to give feedback and they don't like to delegate. And so that shouldn't really be a surprise to people. Um, however, when you're so knee-deep in your organization, you think like, gosh, it's just so unique to us. Um, but it is, it's a lot of the same things. And like you said, they're people, they're people challenges. Yeah. I deal with people. We're messy. What do you make up about why it is that people don't like to set goals, uh, provide feedback and delegate? It's so much easier for us to do what comes to us naturally, which tends to be what your title is or what your role or hard skills are, right? If I'm a finance executive, I'm going to do probably what I went to school for graduate school, what I've been doing. I rely on this. And that's actually so much easier and more fun for me. What's harder for me is to sit down and say, how do I strategically think about people leadership for my team? What is, what does this mean in terms of the people we're hiring, how we're managing them, how we're perform, how we're promoting them? That's harder for them. It's not that they don't want to do it. It's just that you're going to go back to 
I'm going to go back to the same easy recipes I have because I don't like cooking at all. And that's true. I don't, I really despise it, uh, but I'm going to go back to the same things that are again, I don't have to think about it. I don't want to think about it. I want to think about stuff that's more exciting. Yeah. And oftentimes leaders aren't necessarily taught how to do these things. You know, you get promoted because you're uh, exceptional at those hard skills because you have the pedigree and the, you know, um, you went to the four-year school to learn these things. You've been in it for 20 years. You get pretty good at it. It becomes second nature. Um, and this this other side of the of the equation around people is is a completely different skill set that we don't learn in any of those uh, traditional settings typically. No, no. It would. Um, the assumption is is that if you have um, been promoted, and this you know emotional intelligence is part of this. Like it's. Uh, but if if I have been promoted or if I have hit my goals, whatever metrics have been set, there is an assumption or inference or however we want to think about it, that I am doing something well. Uh, And if I'm not, unless somebody tells me I'm not doing something well, or there's a mistake, I'm going to just kind of think everything I touch is like gold. So like, obviously I got promoted because I'm great at collaboration and I'm great at communication. And yes, I hit all my sales goals or I hit these metrics or, you know, I, added this new office location or expanded this system. So we just assume that people have picked up. They, And maybe it comes down to the fact also, we assume that they have worked for great leaders and therefore it's like kind of osmosis into them. And so maybe they have, yet nobody has probably said, hey, Lila, this is what leadership looks like and this is what you need to do. And this is why. Have you thought about like your best boss and what they have said, what they've made you feel? words they've used actually, like actual, like, do you want to do some of that? How is that easier, hard for you? Uh, we don't, I, I think like philosophically we say, yes, we want to do that. And all these other things end up being priorities. Yeah. There is an assumption that it is, that it is just taken on through osmosis and we're not asking the questions to, to ensure, has it been codified? Is it clearly defined? Do we understand what it is? Are we talking about uh, leadership in, in abstractions. Yes. When, yeah. when you, when you started the awesome leader program, you must've started that with your own definition of what it means to be a, an exceptional leader or in your terms, an awesome leader. Yes. <laughs> how do, how do you define that? Yes. And so, uh, yes, it's very California, uh, of me. <laughs> and so my intention was I had been, I, I had been just had amazing clients I was traveling over hundred thousand miles a year. I was visiting all these great locations. I got to go to South Africa. I was going to India. I was going to Singapore. I got to see the great wall, all this, all these things. And these great experiences working with clients all around the world. And, um, I I could see the writing on the wall in terms of like, it is so much harder to get people to physically be places together and to do this training. It is so harder for organizations. It doesn't matter how they set the stage and how I help them. We need to think about a different way to do things. And to be honest, also, I had a great client, her name's Robin. And she was like, can we take this management program and start to actually it can it be online and can it actually be interactive as well? And so I started taking all the materials and creating, you know, what is the awesome leader signature, which is 15 minute lessons and coaching in cohorts. And to me, that awesome leader uh, is self-aware. They have strong EQ. They set goals. They give feedback. They delegate. 
and um, they raise their hand when they need help. Yeah. And I haven't really, and I thought for a while, should I define, I'm a big like creator, like believer in like, let's think of an acronym. Let's make it easy. Like does awesome stand for something? And I was like, okay, you're overthinking it, Lila. Basically you want to make it easier for people to lead with ease. And that's what I'm trying to do is like, look, you don't have a lot of time. I'm going to try and make it practical for you to learn on your own and then come together with your peers and talk about like what's easy and what's hard and get some of that peer accountability. And that brings me back to the kind of the eyes lighting up, even though it's over zoom, but people are like, I found that interesting too. And that's where they're getting it out. They're starting to store memories. They're building new gray brain, gray matter in their brains. Like that realization, even though it's Hollywood squares, it's like zoom panel of faces where they're like, Oh, people are just like, yeah, they're just like me. Yeah. That is it, Lila. That is it. So much of this comes down to isolation. Um, I might be the only one that's experiencing this or feeling this way. So I don't want to bring it up. I don't want to call attention to myself. I don't want to admit that I'm struggling with this or that I don't know the best way to provide feedback. And so we just fall into the habits of not doing it. And just the transparency of hearing other leaders say, yeah, this is also hard for me. And now we have a playbook through a program it can be an on-ramp into so much more curiosity and learning when you're doing it in a safe space, like what you create. Yeah. And it is, it is really, it's validating people's fears and hopes. And they're all of a sudden like, it's dang, it's just not me. It's not me. Right. And that's part of what I tell people, not just in coaching conversations, but in a lot of like, just how Lila talks is like, you know what? Everybody's having the same problems. Right. So the fortune 200 CFO, yeah. Maybe doesn't delegate as much as he wants to. Why? It's so much easier to do some of the stuff himself. Right. And it's the same challenges as the new manager, the scope and the impact may be different yet. It's, it's some of the same, like hesitation. Do I want to take the time to do this? Should I take the time? Should I ask somebody and that validation for people and that ability to be like, Oh, okay. It's not that difficult. It's not me. It restores some of the confidence. I think a lot of people come into their roles as new leaders, new managers, and they are, like you said, they're promoted because they've done some amazing things. They have amazing hard skills. And all of a sudden it's like, like a bucket of cold water. Uh, and it's, um, it's hard to be like, wow, this is not as easy as I thought. Maybe I'm not, you know, maybe, maybe I'm not cut out for this. Maybe I shouldn't be a manager. Well, you probably should be and probably need to be, yet nobody has sat down and actually said, being a manager is part of your job. So I want you to take, could you take an hour each week and think about how to be a manager? Could you think about what feedback you need to give, why it's difficult? Could you write it down? Maybe send a voice memo to yourself and listen to it. Or could you each day just say out loud, this is what I want to do as a, to be a better manager. So that type of thinking, that validation and making it easier in little steps, it goes back to, again, like where I've been hitting in our discussion, like the translate, the micro learning, the steps, just a few things to make it easier for people. And make, you, you want to make it approachable for, for folks so they can build their confidence in it and find their approach to management. You know, there's the, there's the f fundamental things that you need to be doing as a manager, but, but how we might approach it is tailored to who we are, our experience, our teams, the needs of the business, right? Yes, exactly. And that's where, um, while, and we've been talking about it, like the challenges are very similar, yet the scenarios, the situations, the settings are different. And that's where I'm saying to people, look, here are some 
and basic and fundamental are such terrible words to use because they downplay the value. Here are some things that are kind of core to like everyone who manages or leads or should be. You take it and you make it feel authentic. You make it feel like it, it, it feels real to you and it works in your setting. Some of this is going to relate to you. Yeah. And some of it isn't going to relate to you. And that's okay because it's not a cookie cutter uh, approach. And so if, if that word doesn't work for your team or that approach, use something different. However, you still have to give feedback. So how are you going to do it? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. There's the non-negotiables, but you can, yes. uh, there's, there's space for play within each of those. You have mentioned um, the reality and the challenges that are present with the Hollywood squares, the engagement on Zoom. And we are now in this, you know, future of work that has um, created a space for um, us to be able to meet in person more, hopefully. But we also recognize that um, the, the Zoom experience is, is now going to be a part of, you know, business in the future going forward. Um, for better or worse, and there are certainly pros and cons to it. When you think about technology like video conferencing or other technologies in the with the intent of creating uh, connection and fostering trust and collaboration, what are some of the cautionary tales or, or things that you would call it to leaders to watch out for in the way that we leverage technology, um, but recognizing that nothing truly will replace, um, you know, looking somebody directly in the eyes. Yeah. Um, I have been, I've been coaching my teams and my executives to think about it in terms of like controlling the box. Cause you are in a box, people see you as a box. And so to really think about what you're expressing and how you're using that space and how you use, how I use that space in a one-on-one -on -one discussion, whether it's positive, whether it's praise, constructive criticism, planning or whatever, that is a different way in which I'm controlling this box and space and my gestures and my eye contact and how, whether I'm like far back or I'm like up close and so forth, that's different than in like a group setting or a team meeting and so forth. And so that's where I think that we fail to, to just make like a few tiny adjustments or steps or to be purposeful about like, this is my space. This is what I can work with. And so and it's not about having perfect hair and makeup and lighting. However, it is about creating like an experience for the other person. And it just totally like blows my mind that so many teams uh, just don't, and organizations don't even think about that. And um, one of my favorite and probably least favorite for some of my cohorts or my executives is that I will take um, screenshots as we're in a Zoom meeting so they can see what they look like. And they're like, oh, don't do that. And so like, I'm like, and sometimes I'm taking like every minute or so I'm like, just like, you know, I'm like, hey. And so you were in a meeting here with your executive team, right? And so this is what you look like the whole time. And it's not all about, it's, it's the experience that people are creating with the technology. And so you're looking down the whole time. Uh, while other people are talking, it's so obvious what you're doing. You're on your phone, like, come on. And so it's that, I think this, it goes to, like you said, the taking advantage of technology, using it to try and create, recreate some things. And then also just being intentional, planning how you're going to be a leader and how you want to be seen. What is, what's the emotional connection you're making? I love the idea of controlling the box. And I think a, a part of that, Lila, is 
expressing what's happening outside the box. Yes. Right. <laughs> if there's something happening off screen here and you constantly are looking at it, if you can just say, this is what's happening off screen and it's drawing my attention or I need yeah. to keep an eye on it. All of a sudden our imagination about what that could be, which is typically related to, are they not interested in me or something like that? Yes. It goes away and we can acknowledge, oh, okay, this, I have a little more information now than what's provided by the box. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like, give me some information. I will make less assumptions. So I will not climb up the ladder of inference. And this also has to do with, we don't always have to be on video. However, if it's, a, it depends on, or we don't, or I don't know, we're walking. It really has, it just has to be, I think, uh, purposeful. And that's why, again, I'm like, control the box. This is all you have. So control it, like use it. And Um, in some of the workshops that I've done about like, you know, how do you really think about being a remote leader? Like I have little, um, cards at the corner of like my screen, like I'm now in like my video podcast office where we're talking now. And then across the hall, I have like my other office where I work, like sit down and have like coaching calls and do my coaching cohorts. And so I've got little cards at the, like on the screen or near the camera to kind of remind me, like, what am I giving this person? right? What, what is important to them? Like, what are the goals? What am I bringing to this? And so use post-it notes, whatever it is, but you remind you, Hey, what am I conveying? What's so important for me to convey in my brand, in my emotions as a leader in this meeting. So that's again, controlling a box, creating the best situation from something that's not ideal. And it's about being purposeful and knowing what the outcome is that you want. Yeah. Like, what do I want? Absolutely. It's like kind of blows my mind. Oftentimes we're, uh, and I respect that. I always want people to come to me and like, I'm not sure about this and so forth. And I want people to be transparent and that is how I'm going to be the best coach. And once they get that, that, point of like, you know, what do you want out of this conversation? Cause if you want this person to apologize, it's not going to happen. If you want to feel better as a result of this conversation, then go ahead and just tell me what you want to tell that person. And I, and you can then feel better. And so, um, to be very clear on what you're trying to create, is it an emotion? Is it a reaction? Is it an action? Uh, that is, that's also really key. Um, especially because there's other than Slack and email and Voxer and text and all that stuff, it's it's just what you see in this it's box. Just what, it's just what you see. Well, as you're talking about this, in order to be clear around what are the outcomes that we want, what's our intention to being purposeful, that takes time. So what advice do you have for leaders around managing their time, forecasting their week um, so that they can create the space that is required to control the box? Yes. So I would love, and this is what I've been doing with my coaching clients and my, also my cohorts, my coaching cohorts and awesome leader is I want everyone to ideally on Friday, take 30 to 60 minutes. And that's your leadership or manager planning hour. Okay. So, and like you said, with forecasts, cause that's also an idea that I'm working with is kind of like, what's the forecast for next week? What's going to be easy. What's going to be hard even though I'm not in a car on a train going to the airport, like I did before, I still look at the forecast on my phone each morning. I look outside and I decide, do I need a jacket? Do I not? What should I wear? Do I need an umbrella? Sadly, I'm in California. I never seem to need an umbrella period yet. Like when I was traveling, I would be like, Oh, I'm going to New York city. What's the weather? Like I looked at the forecast and I planned accordingly because 
I have the information, the information's at my hand. So I would love, and this is what, again, I've been coaching my teams to do is like, let's sit together and let's say, when are we going to have, which, which conversations are going to be easy next week? Do you need to plan for them? These are going to be easy. No, I don't have to plan for them. Which conversations are going to be more difficult? Oh, this one on Wednesday here um, with uh, Vikram, that's going to be tough. Okay. Well, when are you going to plan for that? Oh, I'll get it done. Guess what? Not going to get done. It's on your calendar. So it's just like, we're all, I shouldn't be so broad, like, unless it's on your calendar, it doesn't happen. So what do you need to do as a leader? So to plan, to have that kind of planning time to say, this is what I'm going to do. This is when I'm going to prep for this. This is when I'm going to create that deck. This is when I'm going to, um, let's be honest. Most people, even now they prepare for interviews the half an hour before they prepare, prepare for performance reviews the day they're due or the day before they're due. So that is not a sustainable way to be a leader, to be an awesome leader. And so take some time. If 30 or 60 minutes seems intimidating, then I'd say, okay, to anyone listening, what's one tough conversation you're going to have next week, spend 15 minutes tomorrow. What are you going to say? Why are you having this conversation? What are you going to say? What do you want to be the end goals of this conversation? So to forecast it and plan it. Love it. So much value in this conversation, Lila. Thank you. Uh, where can people learn more about you and the Awesome Leader program? Yes, so they can go to awesomeleader.com and learn all about the coaching cohorts. And if you want to learn about executive coaching, they can go to bullingtown.com. That's B-U-L-L-I-N-G-T-O-W-N-E.com. I'm also easy to find on LinkedIn because I was the first Lila on LinkedIn. So that really dates me. That should be a badge of honor. But um, yeah, the URL has just Lila, L-E-I-L-A at the end. So happy to talk to anybody there, connect on LinkedIn. It's been such a pleasure. And um, yes, thank you so much. It's been such a fun, easy conversation. Oh, it's been great. Thank you, Lila. Thanks for joining us for another episode of The Leadership Mind. Remember, the mind is the connection between our being and doing, our intent and our actions. Make sure to visit our website, massimobacchus.com, where you can like and subscribe to the show on Spotify, Anchor FM, and Apple, so you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found the episode valuable, please rate the podcast on your preferred platform or share it with your community. Until next week, remember to lead with compassion, curiosity, and gratitude. Great leadership is a gift.